Hello, I'm Luke Dinarona, lecturer at the Sarah Parker Riemann Centre here at UCL, and today I'm speaking with Lala Khalili. Lala is Professor of International Politics at Queen Mary, University of London. She's written widely on issues of political violence, war and counterinsurgency, political economy, racialisation and infrastructure and logistics, among many other things. Her first book was Heroes and Martyrs of Palestine, The Politics of National Commemoration, published in 2007. In 2013, she published the incredibly important book, Time in the Shadows, Confinement and Counterinsurgency. And most recently, in 2020, she published Sinews of War and Trade, Shipping and Capitalism in the Arabian Peninsula, which is probably what we'll focus more on today. A book that covers so much ground, offering a history of the Arabian Peninsula and examining the role of maritime infrastructures as conduits of the movement of technologies, capital, people and cargo. I'm really excited to have you on the podcast, Lala. There have been several very important news stories in the last 12 months that have made me reach for your writing and analysis, or often just your Twitter feed. (laughs) The Evergreen getting stuck, the dreadful explosion in Beirut, the treatment of seafarers and cruise workers during the COVID outbreak, and of course, the most recent escalation of violence against Palestinians in Israel-Palestine. Thank you, Luke. It's really very exciting to be speaking with you and to be on the podcast. So I want to start with the most recent book, Sinews of War and Trade. And just to say I was reading it on the North Norfolk coast um, last weekend while camping and thinking about dredging and land reclamation when in one of the places in England when there are these huge expansive salt marshes where, you know, the line between water and land is kind of moving, ever moving ecosystem. And you write so well about the kind of land reclamation and dredging in the Arabian Peninsula, which and a lot of people I only kind of heard about dredging through reading about New York City and JFK Airport. But, but, you know, reading your book, I found that I had to Google search images of the Arabian Peninsula somewhere I've never been other than transferring on flights. Through the airports. Exactly. So that's my own experience. And looking at the sky from Bahrain, I remember being very struck by when I was a teenager. But with the kind of land reclamation and dredging and the production of these places through modern forms of machine and statecraft, maybe you can talk more about this vast place, the geographical focus which of the book, which is the Arabian Peninsula, because yeah. some people might not know what that area includes and, and, and why you chose to focus on it. So I chose to focus on the Arabian Peninsula, A, because, I mean, for a very pedestrian reason that I'm a Middle East expert and, and I thought it would be really interesting. But secondly, and I think this is probably more uh, a more significant scholarly reason for it, is because often the Arabian Peninsula and specifically the Gulf, Arabian slash Persian Gulf, are spoken of often in extremely cliched sorts of ways and in a series of very familiar genres. Either these are, you know, places of security, so, so security becomes the object around which and a kind of a very mainstream and conservative notion of security becomes the modality around which the region is constructed or people talk about it as being a place of kind of bling and shallowness and no history which I also find deeply problematic and finally the third way in which people talk about the Arabian Peninsula is to talk about it being entirely about oil and of course yes the discovery of oil has been quite significant but this place has been quite strategically important to the American Empire to the British Empire to the Ottoman Empire you name it it has always been a quite a significant place, not only because of its location, but also because of the fact that it has been a very significant and important place, uh, a node of trade for millennia, and and perhaps more significantly since the start of the modern era, because it is it sits between Europe and Asia, because it um, and and Africa, because it connects all of these places, both by land and by sea, and because, of course, the digging of the Suez Canal, a major imperial venture uh, which 
put to work, you know, lots of conscripted people, corvée labor in Egypt. The digging of the Suez Canal connects the Arabian Peninsula much more closely to the Mediterranean and, and therefore to Europe. So this is, it's an in- incredibly significant geographic location. But in terms of topographically, what is also distinct about it is that it is flanked on the one side by one, a very, very deep and old sea, the Red Sea, which is essentially where the two continental plates for Asia and Africa meet one another. And that explains also why it's so deep. And then on the north side, it is flanked by the Arabian slash Persian Gulf and the Gulf of Oman and the Persian slash Arabian Gulf. I'm just going to from here on out refer to it as the Gulf. The Gulf is quite a shallow sea and it, it essentially actually all of that used to be uh, a kind of a, a, a deeper sea it, when when that you know the ice age happened and all of that the waters receded and then it was filled again and it's quite a shallow sea so and then of course you have on the other side the indian ocean which is one of the most important spaces of trade history war enslavement you name it it's you know along with the mediterranean and the atlantic these are you know some of the most significant bodies of water around which a politics has taken shape so I really wanted to write about the Arabian Peninsula also because after having completed Time in the Shadows, I really needed sort of a moment to think about war and violence from the back end. <laughs> what I mean by that is that with uh, Time in the Shadows, I have talked about the violence of war and of counterinsurgency doctrine, of the ways in which confinement happens. It was an extremely intimate look and into into the violence of imperial and colonial counterinsurgencies. And part of the reason that it was so intimate was because I was interviewing people who had been in detention in Israeli and US detention, but also going through archival documents that recounted the works of people that had been in these kinds of detentions. And I wanted to work on something that wasn't so directly interested in the sort of the the bloody edge of the war, but rather about the sort of the logistics, the political economy, the management and accounting and construction and engineering that went into making infrastructures that could be conscripted for war, because that is exactly what happens with these kinds of ostensibly civilian infrastructures, including ports and airports. So I started doing that. And one of the things that becomes immediately clear is that you cannot write about the making of infrastructures without talking about the, the, the ways that we remake also the lived environment, that what we would consider to be nature or, you know, the term nature, I'm putting it in uh, scare quotes here, but nature's constantly remade and in making of infrastructures remakes nature in scare quotes as well. In the Arabian Peninsula, this translates into two different ways that nature is among many, two different ways in which nature is remade. One is in the Gulf, where, as I said, it's very shallow and it has a sandy bottom, but it has an extremely rich coastal or littoral ecosystem. And it has an, also an extremely rich ecosystem, subsea ecosystem. Dredging and land reclamation have resulted in the destruction of these littoral, these coastal ecosystems. Salt flats, for example. You know, you, you look at a salt flat and you think, well, this must be barren or arid because it's salt because of the ways in which we have started to think about deserts, for example, that these are dead places. But of course, anybody who has lived near to a desert, as I did when I was growing up in Mashhad in northeast Iran, uh, you know, we were very close to a Kavir desert, which again looks very arid, but it has an unbelievably rich life through the different seasons. And you can see this if you're living there. You become aware that also salt flats have that kind of a life as well. Um, and so the 
dredging and land reclamation destroy salt flats. Another characteristic of the Gulf Coast, for example, are these amazing mangroves. And if you've been to mangroves, some of the best that I visited were in Karachi, were just absolutely mind-blowingly beautiful places. But probably even more unknown species live in mangroves precisely because they are a kind of a liminal space between the sea and the land. They change and shift with the seasons. Salt water and sweet water mix in them, both, you know, uh, marine and coastal and kind of landbound uh, flora and fauna grow in them. They're amazing. And again, a lot of the Gulf was mangroves and those were also destroyed when land reclamation was made. In the Red Sea, the land reclamation and dredging that was required. Dredging is where you dig into the sea in order to make it deeper. Land reclamation is where you fill out the sea with stable material, often concrete, in order to, for example, you mentioned JFK Airport, in order, for example, to build a runway or in order, for example, to build a port or or actually to build land, which can be then have buildings built on top of it. In fact, as an aside, uh, the building that just collapsed in Miami and where they think hundreds of people are missing was built on reclaimed marshland. So that is another environmental catastrophe that was made by man. And, you know, we we didn't think about it. But anyway, so in the Red Sea, where there is land uh, reclamation and dredging going on, it rips up reefs, coral reefs. It has a, the entirety of the Red Sea has a very rich reef ecosystem. People who've gone, for example, diving or on holidays in Sinai would know that there are these amazing subsea, again, sort of subtropical and tropical, further down you move, ecosystems under the sea. And again, uh, dredging and land reclamation destroy this. But what is also important about this is that there is not just, you know, people would say that this is an economic calculus that goes into this. But of course, there's a political calculus that goes into this processes of state making as well. We have accepted that the kind of liberal or capitalist dictum that in order for us to thrive, economies must grow. And in order for economies growing, you need to have infrastructures. And in order for you to have infrastructures, you have to spend what you can. You have to transform, terraform the earth in however way in order to produce runways, in order to produce port harbors, in order to produce land on which you can build skyscrapers. And so these kinds of dicta of capitalism, which which are centered around growth, often result after several steps into this devastation of the lived environment. And, and for me, dredging and land reclamation were fascinating spaces to study this precisely because they are celebrated. They are discussed so triumphantly as kind of wonders of engineering. And perhaps because in the modern era, and especially in the last hundred years or so, they have resulted in transformations of the environments in which we live. And for the rich countries in the world, it has resulted in massive accumulation of capital at the expense of the environment, at the expense of subsequent generations, and often, you know, in ways that has benefited certain classes better than more than others. And so in, in very specifically classed ways and racialized ways as well. And that was one of the starting points of uh, my study. The other reason 
reason I actually wanted to do dredging and land reclamation is because I have an undergraduate degree in engineering. Uh, and so there, there was something quite appealing about taking what I had learned as a chemical engineer. So I wasn't doing mechanical engineering or civil engineering, which would, you know, where you do this kind of work. But nevertheless, it appealed to me to be able to interrogate the kinds of supposedly scientific verities that I had received as, as an engineering undergraduate student, interrogate them in light of social, scientific, humanistic, critical discourses, which are now increasingly turning their attention to the environment. And not only the engineering, also your engagement with these trade journals and maritime literatures and all of the kinds of, um, you know, your, your, your engagement with law and lawmaking is not, is not kind of vague or secondary. It's often reading a lot of <laughs> what I would imagine are quite difficult to read textbooks, but I mean, whatever floats your boat. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yes, I, I, it is quite appealing to be a student constantly, to feel that the ground underneath you is not entirely solid. It makes you, it gives you a de- degree of humility that makes you open to understanding in, you know, different genres of writing. So I think that's that was part of it. Part of it is also because you cannot understand most of these mega infrastructures without understanding the legal discourses and practices that went into legitimating their construction. You cannot do this without understanding the technical stuff that goes into it. And I think in some ways we have to understand that there is a kind of that what constitutes itself as technical and as neutral or as objective, which it does in the legal sense, it's actually all entirely political as well. So that as a starting kind of step of dealing with this technical material definitely makes you read that material not solely as, oh, this is fun to learn something new about engineering, but also as, wow, it's interesting to see how the discourse of objectivity is constructed or the discourse of scientificity, uh, scientific verity is constructed in these works. I wanted to read a, a little short bit from the, in advance of our conversation, you sent me a couple of papers that are on the way or, or recently published and, and the Oceans of Finance paper you sent me. There's just a short bit I wanted to read as a way into thinking about the sea some more. And you write, the maritime illuminates this very magical quality of capitalism, its ability to transform a world, humans, the sea, an ever altering seabed subject to currents and winds, natural beings and things within and on the shore of the sea even ephemeral imaginaries such as roots, into commodities, subject to contracts, sale, insurance, borrowings, promised bills of exchange, arbitrage, speculative wages, transformation into an asset class, arbitration, dispute and violence. That the sea changes, moves, transforms, is inconstant, unpredictable, vast, rich, as yet unknown, perhaps even unknowable, does not stop capital's attempt to domesticate it, to fragment it, bound it, make it knowable and thus disciplined. I mean, I love that as a piece of writing, which actually sums up, it would be my my kind of paragraph that I'd send to someone <laughs> as an invitation to read the book as well, because I think it, you. it covers that really well. And what I wanted to draw from that was that a common thread across Time in the Shadows, and which I was kind of reading together with this, and Sinews of War and Trade, is a focus is the focus on legal regimes, on, on the sheer amount of lawmaking, and also the density of kind of legal reasoning that makes that leads to the spaces that we, we might think of as having a total lack of justice or accountability. So in Time in the Shadows, the amount of lawmaking involved in producing sites of confinement in the War on Terror in particular, or in Sinews of War and Trade, the many laws, legal processes involved in 
global shipping and trade, which then produce these kinds of invisible spaces on ships and ports and tankers where rightless, which you which you work on in the book, where kind of rightless, deportable, racialized migrants work and toil to quite literally make the world go round. And both both books provide histories of sovereignty and colonialism. But unlike Time in the Shadows, Sinews of War and Trade, it's interesting you said about the back end and the logistics and the things that provide the conditions of possibility for the the war and the confinement and the, and the political violence you talk about. Uh, you you worked you work on in, in other parts of your work, but I also felt that there was the romance of the C two, even if the arbitration and the racialized violence do their best to kind of spoil it. So there's the travel, including your own, the maps, the ports, or the the ports that used to be, or um, the sea as a space of possible connection. So I wanted to kind of ask, is part of that love of the sea what made you want to write the book and, and yet an awareness of the fact that it isn't that innocent and natural, scare quotes, space of flow and tides and currents? Or maybe more broadly, what does it mean for you to kind of think from the sea, from the from the boat, from the shoreline. That's a very broad and slightly too philosophical question. So let me let me start by responding to the latter part of your question. And what is it about the romance of the sea? I grew up in a landlocked place and I Mashhad is about a thousand miles from the sea, Mashhad in Iran. Uh, and I moved to the US, moved to a port, then moved inland, then moved in further inland, then moved to a port, then moved to London, which is a kind of a port. Oh, well, moved to Edinburgh which is almost on the sea and then landed, which is also almost on the sea. And so my life has kind of oscillated between between landlocked places and ports. But the romance of the sea has always been there. I mean, I think that there is, you know, so much written about it and, and so many of the world's greatest novels take place on the sea. Hundred Years of Solitude, Mel, you think of every Melville that you can think of, but also so much of the great scholarship, which I became familiar with once I started doing the kind of work that I do, the kind of scholarly work that I do. And and I think that, that there is this tension between, as you say, the romance of the sea, the maps, the ports, the, the, the ports that are no longer, the subsea life. You know, the, the, this kind of a vastness and unchangingness of the place. The fact that if you go out to see the sky that you see is nothing that you see in our light polluted cities. You know, it's a, it, and it makes you feel extremely small. And in a way, a lot of people compare, of course, the sea to this, to, to the space as these unbelievably vast and rich and unknowable, as I mentioned. And so I think that all of those things give it romance. And then there's, of course, as the tension. And here I'm going to, make my way to the first part of your question. The tension, of course, arises when you read scholarship, such as, for example, Paul Gilroy's The Black Atlantic, which, of course, has also its own fascination with the sea, but also the awareness of the horror of it. If you read anything about the Indian Ocean, there is this sense of also fascination and horror there, of course, because if we are to think about the ways in which particular oceanic spaces have been turned into a kind of shorthand for a particular history, the Atlantic is about the history of slavery. Uh, Indian Ocean is about the history of colonialism. And so in, in a sense, these the shorthand meaning of these oceans, of these waters, is pivotal to our understanding of the modern world that we live in. And, and, it, it, and it is in tension with the more abstract, sublime views of the sea. So that's one thing. The second strand that takes me back to the question of the law is, of course, reading Alan Sekula's essays and watching his films. Alan Sekula, for those who don't know, was a, a an essayist 
but primarily an extraordinary photographer. And he had a, a series of obsessions throughout his life, one of which was aerial photography. He started off with writing about aerial photography, but towards the end of his life, he became absolutely fascinated with the ocean uh, logistics, with the maritime, with ports. And his the, the corpus of his work, essentially towards the end of his life, became all about the sea. And he was also deeply alive to these kinds of tensions. And reading him and the silences, in his work you know there are extraordinary insights but there are also extraordinary silences in his work and those silences and what was said in tandem really kind of shook the way in which I looked at the sea and wanted to do the kind of work that I wanted to see and and, and I have to mention this here because I think it is important to say that those silences for example have been criticized by Christina Sharp in her book in the wake which I think are very valid criticisms and I think that in a way they make the conversation quite poignant because it's very clear that there there is things being said in Sikula's work which are extraordinarily important, but also but also that there are these lacunas which others, including Sharp herself, are filling. So that was the second strand. And then the third strand was was that which you say I keep in tension with with the sort of the sublime and the abstract and the beauty and the romance of the sea. And that is that it, it actually is also quite a banal space. It is a space in which people work on it, on the shores of it, off the shores of it, in work that is often tedious and backbreaking. Marcus Redeker's work on, for example, early modern sailors, absolutely does not romanticize the work at sea. You know, he talks about the way that it, it in, in the early modern times, being a seafarer was this extraordinarily difficult task, physically, emotionally, and it hasn't become any easier. In fact, if anything, the speeding up of the way trade works, the fewer number of people who are aboard ships combined with the further and more highly technical kind of work that they have to do means that work aboard ships has become much more mechanized, if you will, tailorist in some ways and, and much more intense. So that's a kind of banal and important. But there's also other factors. You know, the sea, we see it as this glorious. And I'm actually looking uh, as I'm speaking with you at a, the map of the world that is on my son's bedroom wall where I'm sitting. And you look at it and you see that so much of the earth is covered in the sea. And yet there seems to be also this extremely insidious modality which tries to domesticate the sea, tries to turn these incredibly complex geophysical features into legal categories that can be understood, that can be negotiated over, that can be bought and sold. So, you know, the subsea, the continental shelf, the exclusive economic zones, etc., etc., etc. And so I think it is really important on the one hand to acknowledge that this is this extraordinarily significant, life-giving, life-taking, sublime, abstract space, but it's also extremely banal place of exploitation of humans, uh, extremely horrific space of killing and life-taking uh, in colonialism and enslavement. And so I think that that tension is something that I have tried to keep constantly in all the work that I do, because it it's impossible not to be moved by the sea. It's also impossible not to catch yourself in some ways and say, hey, wait a minute. It is an incredibly romantic, beautiful, incredible space, but it is also the space of death, destruction, exploitation, slavery, colonialism. Yeah. I was reading actually a few days before this conversation, 
an essay, RC of Islands, by I'm gonna I'm gonna get the name pronounced totally wrong, Epili Haufa mm-hmm. on the Pacific, and and it's actually your work that's probably got me onto it, and and one of the PhD students I'm second supervising that's got me onto thinking a lot about the sea, and I, I you know I, I bought Fish Story, which is Alan Sakula's photographic essay book, after you tweeted about writing the introduction to the newer version, so thanks for that. But yeah, reading this book about the Pacific, and and he's making the point, you know, the colonial way of seeing. The place was as a, I think he says something like distant islands in a far sea or something, whereas the oceanic frame is more about a sea of islands. And in the Pacific, also reading about the ways in which the exclusive economic zones, which kind of say that this area of sea and everything that is within the sea is the property of a particular nation state, has benefited in the context of very limited options. Some of the Pacific islands, which have then a huge territory of sea, while having very small islands and reading an essay about how the sea level rises will reduce the land and therefore maybe reduce these huge areas of, of sea and their resources, which would you know have a huge consequences for tuna, which swim through that area. So, yeah, there's a lot of when you look and think about the romance of the sea, you can you can realise that actually you know, all of it's parceled off and that that can have complicated uh, implications is in the context of climate devastation, but also just also some perks for those who are trying to hold on to something in a sea of islands. Yes, I think that that is also another tension in there is that, for example, I write about open registries or flags of convenience, which is a legal category that essentially allows a country to rent out its flag for ships to fly. A ship follows the laws of the flag that it flies and it pays a fee to be registered under that flag and of course you know certain countries have reduced tax requirements reduced fees reduced insurance thresholds loosened up laws around environmental and labor rights and that makes their flags quite cost effective for a lot of shipping companies to fly and it's fascinating to see who some of the biggest flags of convenience are. And they are Panama, Liberia, Bahamas and Marshall Islands, all of which are firmly embedded, not just in U.S. imperial expansion, but very specifically U.S. territorial ambitions, you know, the colonial territorial ambitions at the end of the 19th century and beginning of the 20th century. And of course, you know, Marshall Islands, the joke is always votes with the U.S. Whenever there is, for example, a veto of Palestinian General Assembly, United Nations things, Marshall Islands is one of the places that votes with the U.S. It's, of course, you know, a, a U.S. client in these ways. But why are they, you know, selling this commodity at this incredibly cut rate price? And in ways that, for example, devastates them. So Marshall Islands and Bahamas, both their, their flags fly on top of more tankers, uh, oil tankers and natural gas tankers that transport goods that result in the climate change that will probably inundate both the, you know, the archipelagos of Bahamas and Marshall Islands. So why do they do this kind of a self-destructive thing? And of course, it's because, as you say, in addition to the exclusive economic zones, this is one resource that they can sell, right? This is this is the unequal, racialized, geopolitical, geoeconomic world in which we live, in which people are selling their own uh, futures uh, because this is the only income that they will have access to. And so that 
I think is also something that has to be recognized when we're talking about flags of convenience, when we're talking about these kinds of legal offshoring devices that are being used by places like Panama, like Marshall Islands, like the Bahamas, like Liberia. It is, you know, their future is is a resource that they are now selling. So in that sense, that tension is something that actually makes really clear the geoeconomical inequalities in the world. And I think your mention also of these shrinking exclusive economic zones, which also shrink the access of these archipelagic uh, nations in South Pacific and, uh, you know, the, and Oceania, it reduces their ability to exploit the resources of the sea precisely because of climate change, which is in some ways also, you know, produced by their selling of the uh, flags of convenience is one of the tragedies of our time. It's one of the incredibly terrible dialectics of our time. And staying, I suppose, with the with the kinds of terrible um I wanted to talk about the immobilities of some in a world where things have to be on the move constantly. So I think, you know, you write about this really well in the book. And I, I guess I'm thinking about this. We, we should all be thinking about this because of the pandemic and the way that shifts or sharpens some of the kinds of differential mobilities that define the world, which you've written about recently in an edited collection uh, in terms of the ship workers and crew staff who, yeah, who were basically when we had the fears around particular cruise ships and outbreaks of of COVID on them, or just when global trade ground to a halt, you kind of show the ways in which it was the workers, often migrant racialized workers, who were unable to disembark, apparently due to COVID risks. But, you know, that plays into a longer pattern of exclusion of racialized, illegalized migrants who might be harbingers of disease or, or other forms of uh, pollution. And, and And obviously that kind of makes clear the inequality or the pandemic reveals something which was there, but we weren't talking about like racialized health inequalities, like who does all of the work, who is the front line, or if we if we want to use that military metaphor. But you write, this is in the book, I think I've been reading the papers as well. At this moment, the only thing we know for certain is that the very scale and scope of mobility that has so dramatically defined the age of trade is premised upon the isolation and abandonment of the sailors. I just wonder if you could talk about the aspect of your research and thinking that focuses on the people who do the work, whether on the ships or, or on land and who are kind of who are the kind of made immobile or whose mobility is policed in, in, in intense mm. ways. I want to start by using a phrase that the historian Vivek Bald, and he has written an amazing history of Asians in Harlem. Uh, a number of him were seafarers who jumped ship and settled in Harlem. And one of the terms that he uses in, in describing these seafarers, and he's writing about the early 20th century, but I actually think that that phrase is so intensely and vividly accurate still, is that he describes them as a semi-captive hyper-exploited but globally mobile population. Semi-captive, they're on a ship, they, you know, can't leave. Hyper-exploited, because that, that work is so incredibly exploitative in terms of both sort of the working regimes, but also the wages that they receive. But globally mobile in ways that obviously, as you've mentioned, you know, the limitation of regimes of mobility is part of the forms of sovereign power that states deploy nowadays. And so to me, that phrase is actually really quite fascinating because in a way, as I said, he writes about the 
the, the sailors at the beginning of the 20th century, it's very vividly active and relevant even today because, for example, we saw this with the seafarers during COVID times. Now, this is an extraordinary period. But for, you know, when the, when the COVID lockdown happened, when airports shut down, when ports stopped receiving or allowing people to disembark from the ships, there were people who, there were seafarers at sea who had finished their contracts. Contracts are usually about, especially if you're from the global south, they're, they're supposed to be around 11 months after which you're supposed to be able to get off the ship. They couldn't. And so at some stage, there were hundreds of thousands of seafarers who had been essentially on their ships, sometimes up to 20 month for up to 20 months so for eight nine ten months beyond where they were supposed to be originally and they weren't being paid wages for this they were obviously being still maintained given food and water and whatnot but they were essentially not working wait you know unwaged aboard the ships desperate to get off hadn't seen their families for nearly two years and what is interesting is that that is again being repeated with at, at the same kind of with the same intensity and scale right now because of the ways in which we are thinking about the delta variant of covid as in, in this extremely racist way as being an Indian variant. And so there is a there's fear mongering that is being done, which obviously WHO tried to attenuate by calling the variant the Delta variant rather than the Indian variant, but which people are, you know, obviously using it as um, as another modality of quarantine and control. And we know that quarantines, public health measures have historically been used as precisely this, as on the one hand, the public health measure, but also on the other hand, as another way to sort of put uh, the sovereign state's ability to control and constrain movement, to put it on steroids, you know, and so in a way that this is it becomes very clear when you look at seafarers but also there are a number of different really wonderful scholars, including Deb Cowan, including Charmaine Chu. There are a number of people who are writing about uh, mobility regimes in, in migration across the Mediterranean who are writing about this. It isn't only limiting people's entry that is part of the process of sort of capital accumulation, extension of imperial power by the richest countries in the world. It's also actually facilitating movement. So forms of mobility that are allowed and facilitated versus forms of mobility that are limited and prohibited all assist in the circulation of capital, all assist in the accumulation of capital, all assist in the accumulation of power in the hands of the states or supra-states like the EU that actually can control, attenuate or encourage mobility. And so mobility ends up being a kind of a currency, contemporary capital, because we're living in an age of trade in, in which movement or lack thereof of migrants or of workers, of asylum seekers, of the wanted or unwanted, is the currency of our current moment. And we're, we're kind of getting towards the end of the discussion now. I mean, I really don't want to do this but to end by thinking about Priti Patel, the current Home Secretary, but her kind of policies at the moment do make me think again about the sea and about the place of exclusion from land, but also, you know, um, captivity on the, on the sea, because not only has she kind of raised various plans which have seemed untenable even to the Home Office's already Home Office already geared up to very aggressive, draconian, violent immigration policies, and they seem even too outlandish for them, which are, you know, floating, erecting floating barriers in the channel to stop migrants arriving from France, etc. And you think about the constant reference to Australia because of, and, and their policies on, on boats, which, which, you know, and, and in fact, the UK model is quite like 
Australia, the UK and Canada to some extent, which which is that the new Nationality and Borders Bill, which will apparently be introduced to Commons around early July, which is around the time we're speaking, will include a provision to create an offshore immigration processing centre. There's been talk about using ferries. There was a case of mostly Tamil Sri Lankans, but others detained on a ferry off the coast of Harwich in 1987, which I was reading about. And only um, they were only released from the ferry because of the great famous storm in the UK in 1987, which meant that the boat kind of ended up washing up on on a shore and um, the emergency led to the the kind of clemency yeah. of the British state to, to release those those people, although still later deporting several of them. But, yeah, I'm thinking about about this desire to kind of house immigration detainees on boats. I suppose maybe from reading your work, you can help me historicize Priti Patel's desire to send people to the South Atlantic or to process them offshore. Mm-hmm in a longer history of kind of extra territorializing certain kinds of captivity? I mean, I think the fact that the British were a naval empire, number one. Number two, the fact that it is an island and, and constantly reminds us that it is. The fact that it's imaginary of itself is, a, is of a seagoing country um, all feed into both the projection of British naval power overseas and However meager and pathetic it might be, as, for example, we've discovered that the recent warship being sent to specifically cross through waters claimed by Russia in the Black Sea, they knew that it would provoke it and they wanted to do it anyway. So it's it's a kind of a projection. You know, it's like the hyper-masculine guy who feels like his masculinity is being questioned, doing really questionable things to bolster his masculinity. This is the only kind of proper analogy that I can find for this form of projection of power. So this is this kind of a naval projection of power is, to me, of a kind as with the island forms of detention that Imperial Britain used throughout its dominion over its colonies and which now is being revivified as a form of controlling migration into the country in order to bolster, again, the sort of the imperial nostalgia of a white nation ruling the waves. I mean, it's really important because I've I've written about this in Time in the Shadows, island detention, which wasn't just a thing that the British used, the French used it also, of course, but it was considered to be a very effective way to control unruly colonial populations. But it was also really quite important in other forms of governmentality. So, you know, quarantine islands was something that the British did throughout their empire. So ships that would arrive in ports controlled by the British, you know, often sometimes there was like a little quarantine island offshore where they could then process the the arrivals, monitor them, record them, register their entry, make sure that there were no undesirables among them, for example. So that's one. Island detention, as I mentioned, is quite significant. It appears, you know, the British, for example, sent Palestinians in the Mandate era to Seychelles. Um, Andaman Islands of uh, India was a major detention center for those who dared to resist British rule there. But I mean, St. Helena and other kinds of islands were also used to detain people from the colonies. St. Helena also famous held Napoleon. So this use of islands as places of detention has been, you know, completely written into the DNA of the British Empire. And of course, we know that the modalities of immigrant detention that are being used today are actually very close to other forms of detention that the British have used historically against both intransigent folks, against racialized folks, against you name it. And so in some ways, I'm completely unsurprised that there is a talk of 
offshore processing centers. What is important to recognize is that, of course, some of the most some of the most cruel, terrible elements of this are being borrowed from, for example, Australia. But there's a long history of the British doing this. There are other also bits of it that makes me think that this is very much part and parcel of British imperial history rather than a sort of a borrowing from Australia. So part of what the British did, and and I write about this in Time in the Shadows, is that they would send detainees of one of their colonies or protectorates or mandatory places to another one. So detainees from Palestine would be sent to Kenya. And then the British would say, yeah, but the Kenyan government rules, we don't have any control over that. So, you know, send them there. And so it wasn't just island detentions. It wasn't just the sea which provided the sort of the uh, setting for these forms of detention. It was also offshore in another sense, offshore as in in another location. And the fact that, for example, they're talking about using Rwanda now as an offshore processing place for people that are potentially going to migrate to Britain from Central Africa, I presume, um, it, it speaks also to this. So there's on the one hand, the very literal imagination of an island nation that has to protect itself by setting up these little, you know, protective islands of detention for migrants. But on the other hand, there's also a broader, more abstract thinking about offshore where the undesirable, whether that's the migrants or terrorists or whoever, are pushed off into that offshore. And that offshore can be at sea or it can be in a landlocked place, right, you know, in in the middle of Africa. I think that's a really good synthesis as well of, of your thinking and writing on both the legal and the kind of geographical histories that we need to think about to understand our present. So I think we should leave it there. Thanks so much for speaking. Thank you. It was my pleasure. And thank you so much for reading my stuff so closely. I'm very grateful. I've gained a lot from it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about UCL Sarah Parker Women Centre, find us at ucl.ac.uk forward slash racism dash racialization. Or follow us on Twitter at UCL underscore SPRC.